This is Amateur Logic, episode 147, for September 15th, 2020. This episode of Amateur Logic is brought to you by MFJ, the world leaders in ham radio accessories at mfjenterprises.com. And by ICOM. Get out and be active with the perfect QRP companion, ICOM's new IC705 and its optional multifunction backpack. Welcome to another episode of Amateur Logic. I'm George. I'm Tommy. I'm Emil. And I'm Mike. And we've got a fun show lined up for you tonight. Some interesting things coming up a little later in the show here. It is September, and it is still hot down here in the south, but I hear it's not up in the Great White North. Uh, not so much anymore. A couple of weeks ago it was, but, uh, things are cooling down for the fall. Yeah. Well, they're not here yet. We don't get fall until about, oh, the end of November, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, It lasts about two weeks. Yeah. (laughs) So. (laughs) Then we get winter that lasts two more weeks. (laughs) Yep. That is true. Well, let's go around and see what everybody's been up to lately. Tommy, what have you been up to since the last show? Uh, not a whole lot. Uh, just been mostly doing some projects around the house here. I've been kind of behind on. Um, uh, I kind of was the slacker this month, so I don't have a segment this month. Um, so I'm just kind of here just for the eye candy. Okay. <laughs> well, that's as good as a segment right there. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it is. <laughs> Email, what's been going on down there? Well, you know, with all these pies around here, I'm I'm just so lazy uh, trying to keep up with them. Besides doing using that tool that I had last time for monitoring them all and keeping them all up to date, I figured I'd uh, go off in a little different uh, direction this time and catch up on some of the uh, locations I log where I operate from, and I, I needed to consolidate, and I found a way. So you'll you'll see that later. Yeah, that's a pretty cool way, too. I didn't know about that. Uh, Mike, what's up up there? Well, I've, uh, well, some, some of the folks in the chat room may, may not be aware of this kind of uh, ongoing joke that Marty80PO and I have going with these... Uh, these old bidx 20s that we we've had for quite some time now and i and i i must say now that i'm losing because the contest is to see who can procrastinate the most and uh i don't know if you can see that little red pc board on top of the of the full board there it's an agc mod and i managed to get as that as far as that installing that so i think i'm ahead of marty 
at, at this point, so I'm losing. Oh, you better slow down. <laughs> Uninstall it. I gotta learn to pace myself. <laughs> and since email didn't do any pie stuff this time around, I did. Not not because he didn't. It's just I had something in mind that I wanted to try. I thought might be interesting to do, and I tried it. We'll have to find out if it works a little bit later in the show. Well, you know, anytime we've got a a show going on live, we've got something else happening at the same time. What is it, Emil? Hmm. Well, I'm thinking that uh, you're referring to the AmateurLogic.tv chat room at the uh, URL you see here. And the, um, you know, from the group we have in there is uh, quite quite rowdy and it's so fun. It's almost it's almost as fun as us here on the show. It's like almost half the fun is in fact. But which half? Yes, uh, <laughs> you got to figure that out. That's the, that's a, a question. It's Nobody like they're been able to really answer that yet. It's almost like they're watching us. Hmm. A lot like that. You noticed that too, did you? I did. <laughs> oh, and we're going to tell you about the 15th anniversary contest one more time. You know, that's coming up next month in October. Amateur Logic will be celebrating 15 years. and 15 wow. years of funness. It doesn't seem like it, but it is. And we're going to be giving away this nice radio over here. It's a IC705 along with a complete prize package. You'll want to get in on that. It doesn't cost anything to enter. We'll have more details later in the show tonight. Uh, email, I think you have a cheap old post. Well, I don't know if it's really cheap or not <laughs> that you want to share with us tonight. Yeah, yep. In the Facebook forum, um, we had um, Jeff Bearden, I believe, post something about the um, NASA's uh, Deep Space Network now, which he's, his only comment was it's amazingly cool. And I'm, I'm going to have to second that and agree with it because uh, they're tracking a mission out there, which you can see in real time what they're doing on that network with their uh, communication systems. Um, but they're tracking a uh, mission that's, I think it's 43 years old, right? Uh, the, the Voyager 1 and 2 uh, missions have been out there forever. Uh, I think it's 43 years, 1977. And um, it's amazing to me to know that they can still communicate with them. And I, I, I wanted to do some reading on it just to see what's going on. And apparently they use uh, 2.3 gig and 8 uh, 0.4 gigs, I believe, are the bands they're on. And the actual radios on the the uh, Voyager 1 and the Voyager spacecrafts are, like, transmitting with only 23 watts. And it's amazing, considering they're 13, I think it's 0.9 billion miles away and traveling at a pretty high rate of speed. So I'm I'm always wondering what they have to do to uh, make that work. And apparently they use a combination of their um, uh, antennas, either the really big ones, I think they call it the DSS-63, or two of the smaller ones, uh, which are 70-meter dish antennas. 
So that's absolutely amazing to me. So yeah, thanks for uh, posting that. I, I, I've seen it before the DSN Now site, but uh, Jeff Bearden uh, posted that out there. Always fun to watch those things and what's what's going on. They're still communicating with it. With propagation like that, the universe must be open. <laughs> I'm thinking <laughs> intrastellar. Or in, uh, well, it's outside of our solar system for sure now. Uh, but, yeah, they're out there. That's that's a DX station right there. And I think the that's a band opening. Isn't that pronounced V'ger? V'ger, <laughs> yeah. It was on the first Star Trek movie. That's right. Yeah. That's right. In the movie it was for sure. So I want to show you all something. This, the Amatrologic family. I don't know what it says on the bottom there. Happy 15th anniversary. Don't turn it up to read it. Yeah, established 2005, happy 15th anniversary. This is a special commemorative bias teacup (laughs) (laughs) sent to me by the cheap old man. And I know... You know, he Did didn't he ship it COD. That's what I want to know. No, <laughs> he, he didn't ship it COD. It just showed up here, and I didn't know who it had come from. And I had to double check to find out for sure. So uh, I appreciate that email, and I cooked up a special batch of bias tea just before the show tonight. Sounds good. Got to send that tea in the right direction. Yep. Okay. What is what is your segment tonight? My segment is all about um, wanting to use the new integration from QRZ's online logging system. So I've always had the fun of having to uh, export ADF files from WSJTX or something else from one computer to another if I'm operating in here in the studio on a rig or out there in my shack on a rig or somewhere else. It's always fun getting the uh, logs to where I want them to go. Um, So the QRZ has a feature now that they've added where you can integrate your logs in their cloud. They they moved to the cloud, I think, uh, last year. Um, And basically, it's, it's being able to manually log, automatically log, and then have that automated between Logbook of the World back and forth. Mike, Tommy, Amateur Logic TV viewers, in this um, episode of Cheap Old Man Minutes, I'm going to show you a feature that I use from the Cheap Old Cloud QSL and QRZ uh, Logbook of the World integrations. So what is the QRZ Logbook, first off? Um... What can you do with it? Uh, we can manually log via QRZ web interface. You can import and export logs via files in the ADIF format. The feature that I'm going to talk the most about is the ARRL's Logbook of the World integration from QRZ, which allows you to import and export using your uh, Logbook of the World trusted certificate from their certificate authority. 
and they also have some built-in award analysis. So the QRZ logbook itself is accessible from their QRZ uh, website, QRZ.com. And when you're logged in as a user, you have a My Logbook underneath the um, call sign over here on the right. Um, and you can see several columns here of what you've logged, what you've put into other systems like Logbook of the World, and their confirmation status or QSLs. Well, like we said, you can manually log via the QRZ web interface, which gives me some freedom as I'm going back and forth between check and studio uh, stations and uh, where I can put the information on or in the system, whether I'm casually having QSOs or logging from other uh, applications. Uh, this is the way to do it manually, usually when I'm doing QSOs or uh, hunting for parks on the air or other methods where I'm, I'm manually doing it as I'm turning spinning the VFO. You can also import and export logs via ADF, ADF files. Um, so if you are doing a whole bunch of uh, FT8 or WSJTX contacts and you get their logs out of that software, you can simply take that file that it generates and upload that or import it into the uh, log, uh, QRZ, your logbook. And then from there, you'll be able to do other things with it. Which is what this is all about. So there's an integration feature within QRZ that allows you to use your certificates that are issued from the Certificate Authority of Logbook of the World from the ARRL that so that you can integrate your logbook in QRZ's cloud service with uh, the logbook of the world with ARRL. So for instance, I can take and when I upload those or import those things from other programs like WSJTX or manual entry from wherever I am on whatever station, I can actually take those records now that they're in my QRZ logbook and export them out straight to logbook of the world. It basically prompts you for your password, but it is using their uh, certificate or encryption based technologies to match up contacts, which makes them so uh, valuable, I guess you could say. Um, and uh, the integrity is maintained so uh, this is just integrating with logbook of the world through import and exports. Of course, when I'm importing from logbook of the world into QRZ, what I'm doing is uh, validating or taking the QSLs that come back. 
to uh, Logbook of the World. So if you want to think of it, Logbook of the World is the source or my my trusted logbook, if you will. But I've integrated it with something I can use as a web interface from anywhere, which is QRZ. So that's what I've been doing with this. And um, of course, you can export as well. You're sending everything that you imported into QRZ's logbook or manually inputted it and then exporting that out to logbook of the world and then importing them uh, to get any QSLs that came back from those QSOs. So uh, there's plenty of information on their site on how to set this up. I'm not going to bore you with that for sure because um, that's it's quite a bit takes getting used to to use their uh, TQSL and understanding what's actually happening with their trust um, and certificate authorities. So uh, there's, again, there's a lot of information. Uh, the site itself, CureZ, uses two-factor authentication. If you're worried about your stuff getting hacked and, you know, slashed and <laughs> it's on the internet. But uh, it is uh, it is so far working great for me, and it gives me that freedom of going between stations. No matter where I am, I use the same interface, <laughs> which is exactly what I was looking for and then also maintaining the uh, integrity from that logbook of the world offers with their the way they handle certificates and contact validations so what does it all mean now I can basically put all my logs in the QRZ system either manually or importing them from other softwares that support ADF like WSJTX there's many others as I'm sure you all know, that support that ADF file and lets you export logs or just take the files that you generated while you were operating. Um, then you can simply import and export QSL and QSL transactions to and from AWRL logbook of the world. Um, the QRZ awards and the AWRL awards are a little different from each other, but I found that they're close enough, uh, especially like the uh, Work All States and the D, uh, DX100 awards and the um, DXCC are close enough. Where they'll mean something. You just gotta know which uh, which what's in each. So I still use the interface for that from the logbook of the world to see where I'm at, but. Uh, this is basically consolidating how I log from wherever I am via any web browser. So, 73K5QKR. Whoa, there, what is that? that? That picture, my wife took this picture when she visited New York City uh, and she went to the 9-11 Museum. So I figured it would be a fitting tribute here for, on 9-11 to show that, that thing at the upper left-hand corner is the antenna, George, that was on top of the North Tower. That's what the piece of it, they have it in the museum. Yeah. I don't know if that was a television antenna or a radio or maybe both. Do you, do you have any idea what that was? I think maybe it was both, but it, it may have just been television. I, I don't recall right off. Okay. Yeah, I know. I just, um, I was talking about the show in, in my segment doing the video the other night, and she sent me that in the email and I went and talked to her. Her and her sister went up to New York for something, and uh, she sent me that. So I figured I'd share it. That's pretty, uh, pretty amazing that that piece 
made it down, I guess, sitting at the top. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's some heavy-duty metal there for sure. Uh, that was a long way to come down, though. Yep. And that one right to the right of it, what is that? I think she was talking, that was, uh, I think they had a display of some of the metal that had uh, melted oh. and pretty much caused that, I think, collapse there. I'm not too sure. I've never been to that museum, but she was there and took some of these pictures when she saw the antenna. She figured we would like to see that. <laughs> yeah. And she was right. Yep. I guess that uh, ladder truck there must have been there when they fell. Yep, probably so. September the 11th, 2001. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember where I was. I'm sure y'all do, too. Well, back into our emails here. I have one that came from Dennis, KL7HRO. He's probably in the chat room over there. He asked me a question. He said, George, is your octopus still packed for fill day and not erected? He's talking about the octopus antenna that we had at, well, not this year's, but last year's fill day. And he wondered if I could measure the 20-meter whips for him and let him know, or, um, you know, did, did I keep written records on that, and what were the final measurements? Well, I did not keep written records on it. Uh, anyway, I think he figured it out. He said, no problem, thanks. I am finding part of the problem was that I didn't trim the ends, the ends down so that only a little extended into the coil. I'm going to agree with you, Dennis. I think that is, I think that can be an issue because the whips that come with those ham sticks are pretty long, and if they do stick back under the coils a long way, I believe that caused some issues because I don't remember what band it was, but one of the bands I was trying to tune on it, as I came in, you know, I got so far, and I really didn't get the SWR dipped as much as I wanted, but if I continued to come on in, it started rising again, and I should have clipped them right there, and it looks like you figured that out. So good information to know. Well, we're going to be back in just a moment. After months of extensive development and testing, it's finally here and ready to take remote operation to another level. The new RigPi station server from MFJ and Howard Nurse, W6HN, is going to change the way you think about getting on the air. Why be bound by the four walls of your ham shack when you can take it with you wherever you go? The MFJ1234 RigPi lets you operate from anywhere you have an Internet connection on your Apple or Android mobile device, iPad, tablet, Kindle, laptop, or desktop computer without additional hardware. Just fire up any web browser and get on the air. RigPi connects to most any transceiver with cat control. Operate single sideband, CW, AM, FM, digital, or any mode your radio supports. Operate your rotor. CW Keen, digital modes, logging, spot monitoring, call book lookups, and more. 32 user programmable macros let you control the features you want. Two or more hams from different locations can operate different radios at the same time using a single rig Pi. The MFJ1234 Raspberry Pi's Raspbian operating system comes with many free programs installed like FT8, RIDI, WSJTX, FL Digi, a word processor, email, and spreadsheet. 
Plus, thousands of Linux-based programs, including many for ham radio, are available. The Rick Pi Station server is available as separate modules, allowing you to customize it a piece at a time, or get the complete unit with Rick Pi Base, OS firmware, audio board, and CW keyer board. The Rick Pi audio board connects to your radio and serves send and receive audio to your mobile device, or use it to operate digital modes like FT8 and FL Digi. It includes IQ inputs for use in pen adapters and has built-in isolation transformers for RF and Humphrey audio. The keyer board generates perfect Morse code using the popular K1EL wind keyer chip. Just connect your favorite paddle. Software modules for RigPi will be available on GitHub as a free open source download so you can add your own features in the future. Get your MFJ1234 RigPi today and take your remote operation to the next level. MFJ, the world leaders in ham radio accessories at MFJEnterprises.com. They have that RigPi back in stock now. As a matter of fact, they are moving to the Raspberry Pi 4 for those. And, you know, I think we'll see some improvements in speed. Yeah, I don't really see any issues with speed with mine, but the four would be nice. I'm sure it'd be a little snappier, but I love that thing. I I use mine all the time. Oh it's, yeah, it's actually surprising to me how much I use that thing. It's pretty I- amazing what NFJ comes up with, and in fact, uh, <laughs> they they should they should have uh, always innovating underneath their uh, logo because you just look at the uh, the amount of products that they continually add. Uh, to their catalog, um, it's amazing. Yeah, and they almost never drop anything. Everything, I've, almost everything they ever made is is still available. Uh, nowhere else could you find more ham radio products. And Mike, your segment tonight is it's not necessarily amateur radio, but then amateur logic is you know about a lot of different things. It doesn't really mean amateur radio necessarily we just all happen to be hams although um you you coordinated you might consider it you might consider it to be a ham or a radio accessory i guess you could think of in that respect but uh um actually uh our good friend chip k9mit uh put put hit his project it was his project and he put it together for me uh, with a little arm twisting, very little arm twisting. Uh, I asked him for a few photos, and he did this nice presentation, and I added a little narration to it. And, uh, yeah, um, well, you'll see for yourselves. It's an enigma. Build your own enigma. An enigma kit built by Chip K9MIT. Chip's son-in-law was in England on business and had purchased this kit for Chip as a Christmas gift two years ago. He purchased it from the gift shop at Bletchley Park, the site of the British code-breaking activity during World War II. He was aware of his long interest in code-making and breaking activities that occurred during World War II. Chip's bookshelves are filled with books relating to this subject. He always dreamed of finding an Enigma machine at an antique store or flea market, but this was the next best thing. The next best thing to the real McCoy, you might say. Sorry about that, Chip. 
Blatchley Park, outside of London, where the real work of Alan Turing and the Codebreakers took place. The component side of the PCB, component locations clearly marked, plated through holes, very sturdy in its design. Chip says the solder side of the board mimics the other side, and starting with this reminded him of the late 50s and 60s when he built his first Allied Knight kit and later Heath kits. Keyboard and rotor wheel switches installed along with plugboard jacks. They took some time, but as Chip has said, it's a process. The four seven-segment LED displays are in place as well as the yellow resistor networks near the IC drivers at the bottom of the board. A quick look back at the board before populating with components. The LEDs were mounted at a uniform height using a drill bit as a spacer between the two leads while soldering. It took some time making sure the polarity was correct. Close-up of the switches installed that would become the keyboard of the unit. Once again, Chip was pacing himself and taking his time, which is hard to do sometimes, he says. Decals for the keys as well as up and down arrows to mimic the settings of the rotor wheels that are implemented by the seven-segment LEDs. A clear lens covers the individual LEDs that light, indicating a letter of the alphabet during key presses. Lens not shown here. Close-up of the quadruple NAND gates and triggers with associated resistor networks. Another view of the LEDs and related components. Plugboard leads to be used on the plugboard for further encoding of the rotor wheel outputs. Chip says there is tons of information on the Crypto Museum website as well as other sites. Google is your friend. Just enter Enigma and or Codebreaking and enjoy. Here is a picture of an actual Enigma machine. Chip hopes that you enjoyed his presentation as the kit was a lot of fun to build. Well, that's it for now. 7-3 from Chip K9MIT. And me, Mike, VE3MIC. And you know, I remember Chip talking about that, and probably back before we actually started assembly on it. And I see he he moves a little faster than you do when it comes to putting kits together, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure Chip doesn't have one of those box of incomplete dreams. Yeah. Oh, I see he's in the chat room now. Chip, i I wanted to know, were you able to decipher what the Germans are up to with it? Or I guess it would be the 
The Russians are the Chinese or North Koreans these days. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And Mike, those those Enigma machines are fascinating. Yeah, what is that behind you? This is uh, this is um, a picture of the. I, I guess it's from the uh, museum in England, and it's the uh, the the Enigma machine that Alan Turing designed and built, and that was the. Uh, you know the machine that did the decoding uh, and intercepted the uh, you know the, from intercepted German messages that were encrypted with those Enigma machines. I got a reply from Chip there. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that's repeatable. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we can. Anyway, but it sure is funny. Yeah. Uh, oh blank, we lost. That's what he was able to decode with it. So, well, thanks very much, Chip, for doing that. Um, it was really great to see one of those. I've never actually seen a git. Um, I, I didn't uh, have the picture with me, but um, I saw it. I'm not sure what model they they made various models of those Enigma machines uh, over the years uh, during the war, and um, there's one in the. Canadian um, Military Communications uh, Museum in uh, Kingston, Ontario. That uh, I didn't get a very good picture of it because it uh, it was behind glass, of course, and uh, a lot of reflections when I when I took the picture. But uh, it's it's pretty interesting history. Uh, both Chip and um, Terry are saying it's a picture of the bomb machine. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm not sure what the bomb is. That's the machine that Turing uh, made. Oh, that may be. It may have been his its nickname, and it's bomb with a with an e on the e. end. So yeah, yeah. It 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 probably uh, stands for something. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of interesting hi- history, and and there was a movie out that I haven't seen yet. So please, no spoilers yet. Um, that was based on Alan Turing, um, and that whole uh, whole Enigma machine uh, decryption. Not to be outdone by email, you have a space topic tonight to talk about, don't you, Mike? I do, and that was uh, something that Tommy was alluding to. Um, it's been kind of all in the news over over the past week, and it's the uh, the new installation of what they're referring to as the interoperable radio system, or IORS, um, which was installed in the International Space Station. One of the modules, the first module that they've installed, is actually an FM crossband repeater. Uh, using which uses a two meter uplink and an access tone of 67 hertz and a download downlink frequency on UHF and apparently it's been quite popular since it was activated on September 2nd and uh, you can find more information on the uh, the Eris.org site you can leave your radio on and and watch for the uh, if you've got an app that can monitor uh, the location of the International Space Station uh, just leave your uh, Two meter radio on, or actually, it's the downlink you want to listen to. So that would be uh, four four hundred thirty seven dot eight hundred megahertz. Um, you're likely to hear activity. I, I've heard reports of several hams that have 
attempted to get in, but it's always been busy uh, when it passed overhead. So um, maybe your best bet would be in the early morning hours if if the path is uh, is overhead at that time. Um, probably less competition. So if what, you live in central Mississippi, your chances are in about 38 minutes and 54 seconds. So is that the pie clock you've got back there? Yeah. Yeah, it's got the uh, satellite tracker in it, so I've got the International Space Station done. I've also got my uh, 8600 receiver on my Discone antenna tuned to 437.8. So if it comes over while we're still still on the air here, I'll turn it up and get it here. Cool. Cool. Yeah, I've been wanting to listen to it myself. Uh, another, I guess, foreign object to you, Mike, arrived in in the post, was it in the last <laughs> week or so? <laughs> yes, my my care package for my brother, my Cajun brother from another mother. <laughs> he oh, sent me this, this really terrific uh, care package, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I pretty much been through everything except for I've been uh, saving the the donut mix and the and the coffee. Um, for for a special occasion, so the other the other products have been consumed by yours truly, and and perhaps uh, maybe 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 slightly by some members of my family, but hotter than hot jalapeno. <laughs> um, I gotta say, Emil, those were great chips. Yep. Um, not as hot as I expected, though. I I enjoyed them. Nobody got them. I ate the whole bag. I ate them on a Friday night, and let me tell you, um, and be warned, um, there's fine powder on those chips, as I found out the next day. I went bleary-eyed, went to sit in my chair, the same chair that I ate them in, and I had my arms probably on the armrests, and of course I, I started rubbing my eyes. Uh, oh no! Early Saturday morning, and I maced myself. <laughs> so, so the moral of the story is: beware of Cajuns bearing gifts. <laughs> yeah, you know those zap potato chips are all over the place up here. We don't. I don't see chiwis in the stores here, but zaps are—they're just about everywhere. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that. They're not supposed to go in your eyes. I'm not sure, but <laughs> the voodoo. I, I can testify to that. They are definitely not supposed to go in your eyes, and and be careful where you eat them, because they leave a an invisible residue that'll come back to haunt you later. <laughs> wow! Oh, it was terrible. Like I, I uh, with the, without any exaggeration, my me. eyes swelled up. I had to go to the bathroom and find the eye drops. Um, because they were red and puffy and watering, <laughs> and, and normally, uh, normally, you know, you could eat something hot, and it still doesn't do that to your eyes. But yeah, um, right. don't rub your eyes after eating the chips. The next care package, I'm going to put that biggest thing not for the eyes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks very much, Emil. Appreciate that. You're All right, great. Right. We're going to be back in just a moment because I've got. Uh, well, my special project for tonight, it's, well, it's a little trip back in history, sort of. 
in a way. Something I thought was interesting brought back, uh, well, it didn't bring tears to my eyes, but it was still, <laughs> you know, it, it was uh, a Maybe lot of fun to do. Maybe you need some chips. Yeah, well, I'll yeah. some chips. Get out and be active with ICOM's new IC705 and its optional multifunction backpack. The IC705 is your perfect QRP companion as you have base station features and functionality at the tips of your fingers and a portable package covering HF 6 meters, 2 meters, and 70 centimeters. This compact rig weighs in at 1 kilo or just over 2 pounds. With RF direct sampling for most of the HF band and IF sampling for frequencies above 25 megahertz. 5 watt battery operation with BP272 or 10 watts with a 13.8 volt DC supply. Modes include single sideband, CW, AM, FM, as well as full D star functions. A large 4.3 inch color touchscreen and live band scope with waterfall. Integrated GPS with antenna and GPS logger, micro USB connector, Bluetooth, and wireless LAN, and there's a micro SD card slot. It comes standard with the HM243 speaker microphone, and it supports QRP and QRPP operations. The perfect accessory for the IC705 is the LC192 optional backpack with a special compartment for your IC705 and room for accessories for soda activations or just a day in the park. The IC705 has now received FCC certification and ICOM expects products to be shipping to dealers by the end of September. Visit icomamerica.com amateur for more information about this and all the great ICOM radios. My segment tonight is old school. I'll, I'll just put it that way, and it really brought back a, a lot of fun times for me. This month I wanted to do something with the Raspberry Pi, and I was feeling a little bit nostalgic. So I wondered, can you run DOS programs on a Raspberry Pi? And the answer is yes. There's a couple of things you're going to need to do this. First, the Raspberry Pi is built on the ARM architecture, and DOS machines were built on the Intel architecture. Completely different computer models. What we have to have is a translator or an emulator that will emulate the x86 or Intel style of CPU in an ARM processor. And then you'll need a DOS operating system to install on it. Well, there's several different ones out there. Uh, they're not quite ready for prime time, at least some of them aren't. Uh, the one that sounded like it was going to be the best involved using QEMU as a quick emulator. And then you install FreeDOS on the computer. However, this proved not to be up to par and very, very difficult to install. As a matter of fact, I never got the installation to work right. Now, there's another one that's a little more well-known called DOSBox. I thought I'd give it a shot. You know, it's claimed that it's mostly used to run DOS games, but I thought, what the heck, it's not really going to take that much to try it out and see. And it's an all-in-one package. It's the x86 emulator and DOS. I'm using a Raspberry Pi 3B Plus here. 
I could have used a 4, but I thought the 3B Plus would probably be strong enough. I've installed the latest version of Raspberry Pi Buster operating system and done all the updates to get it current. I'm going to change the screen resolution to make it a little bit bigger rather than 1920 by 1080. You'll see where I went into the Raspberry Pi configuration and changed it to be 1280 by 720. This will double the size of the DOSBox window. Installing DOSBox is not very complicated. You bring up a command prompt, type the command sudo apt install DOSBox. And in just a few moments, DOSBox is installed. To run it, just type DOSBox in the terminal. And there we go. We've got DOS running in a window on the Raspberry Pi. And now we'll need to use the MKDIR command to create a folder that we're going to mount as the C drive. So we type MKDIR space tilde slash DOS. We can proceed now by launching DOSBox. And we'll mount that folder as the C drive. So we type mount space C space tilde slash DOS. Now we'll type C colon to go to that drive. And there we go. That is the root of our DOS drive. I just happen to have some old floppy disks with DOS programs on them. I wonder if we can get a floppy drive to work with this. This is from HP. It's a USB drive that I got with a laptop. Number of years old. It's the only floppy that I own anymore. We'll plug it into the Pi and see if it's recognized. Uh, error mounting drive. Well, that's because there's no disk in it. So, we'll stick in this one labeled Engineering Program with a dot matrix printer. And we can see by the LED that there is activity, so something's happening. Let's go back to the Raspberry Pi operating system now and bring up the file manager. And there it is. It's a floppy disk, and it's titled Engineering. We'll click on it to find out what's on it. And, you know, this is a floppy, so it's kind of slow. It's going to take a little bit. And this, this video has been edited through the magic of television for speed. And here is GW Basic on it. You know, there's a number of programs on here that require GW Basic. They were all written in that. And I just happen to have that copy, so that's convenient. Now, how can we access this drive? Well, we'll need to mount it as well. And after a couple of experiments to find out the correct path to enter, I came up with the right one. So now we can just type A colon, and that'll take us to the floppy disk. There, we've got an A prompt. 
Let's see if it worked. A DIR command. And there's the contents of that disk. Here's a program I wrote years and years ago called Veriome.base. Let's see if we can get that to run. We'll need to run GWBasic. So I type GWBasic space Veriome.bas. And I checked, and the light lit up on the floppy, but I wasn't quick enough to get it in front of the camera. Oh, wow, it's working. The Various Relationships of Ohm's Law. And it's got the familiar method that used to all of these programs had. It's just a top-down menu. You can see you got choices 1 to 5 there. And you're supposed to enter the number for your choice. And we'll type 1 and enter for formula in watts. And there's three different formulas to determine the wattage. And that depends on what values you have available. So I'll choose 1 again. P equal E times I. The first thing it wants to know is the voltage. We'll say 100 volts. Press enter. Then it wants the current. Well, let's say it's 2 amps. Press enter. There we go, power of 200 watts. Now we can press any key to continue. Now when we're ready to exit, we can just enter a 5, and that will quit the program. But wait a minute, that's an OK prompt. That's not a DOS prompt, so we're still in the GW Basic environment. Well, quit won't get us out of there. Exit won't get us out, so... How do we return to the DOS prompt? We type system. And there, we've got our A drive back again. Let's go to the C drive now and try something else. I just happened to copy some other files earlier to another folder. Let's look at one of them. This is probably the most popular DOS shell ever. Norton Commander. And it runs. Now here's a website you can go to, Bandania, and you can find many old DOS games on there. I downloaded one just to give it a shot. It's bttf2.exe. Let's see if we can get it to run. First, it wants to know what kind of monitor we're using, and I'm going to tell it choice number four there. I think I'm going to emulate a VGA monitor. And here it is, Back to the Future 2. This is pretty slow loading. It was probably slow on an original DOS machine as well. But I'm going to speed it up here just so we can get through it and see if it operates. And we're going through the credits now. This was cool looking stuff back during the day. Doc Brown says, Marty, you've got to come back with me. Marty says, where? And it looks like he's chewing gum. Doc Brown says, back to the future. And then we got more loading to do. And finally, there's Marty on a hoverboard along with someone else and a garbage can. I'm not sure what that is, but apparently Marty skateboards at this point. And the game goes on. I haven't done much with this. 
But I can see that some things do work on it. Some other things I tried did not. I hope you've enjoyed this trip back into history during the days of the DOS prompt. Yes, you can run DOS on a Raspberry Pi, and it appears it runs quite well on this Raspberry Pi 3B+. Nice. That's pretty cool. Yeah, Tell the fun. truth, you were playing Back to the Future 2 before we came on the air, weren't you? <laughs> uh, no, not really. Uh, I, I couldn't figure out how to make him move. I did at one point, but, you know, I wasn't a gamer. I never really played games on computers. Brian needed a joystick hooked up to the game port. Yeah, and you could do it with the keyboard, and I think I just didn't press the right key at the right time when I was actually recording i i had it working before that but still i could only get to the end of the block before i ran out of life you know that's, that's a, i'm just you, you don't want me on your team if you're gaming i'll put it that way it just never was my thing you had um you had uh norton's commander i know even in the native pi raspbian os you can load midnight commander did you notice that Oh yeah, and I didn't, yeah. I didn't mention that. But yeah, I, that's one of the first things. Anytime I, uh, I restore an image on a Pi, and setting it up, I always add Midnight Commander MC. Yep. And yep. And it looks exactly like Norton. But since I had Norton on one of those floppies, I said, Yeah, I'm try gonna, to load it. I'm going to do that. And that program, very own. Um. That's probably one of the first programs I ever wrote that actually did anything. Uh, you know, I <laughs> I saw the date on that floppy, and I think it it either said eighty nine or ninety, and I probably wrote it before that and just didn't put it on the floppy till then. I don't know, but it's lucky that the media didn't degrade on it. I know I've lost a lot of videotapes that are. Uh, newer than that. Yeah. Probably well, need to get you a new box of floppies and format them and recopy your stuff over there on I've got the a last lot of, 30 years. i got a lot of floppies up there. Uh, you know, a stack of blank ones about this tall, but, you know, I, I'm just not doing anything with them. They're as old as the rest of them, so... You may put those in one of those museums where Marty's Enigma machine or uh, Chip's Enigma machine came from one day. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was fun. That just kind of took me back to when I was first starting to mess around with computers. You know, that was yeah a lot of fun. I'm yeah. Gonna... That was bleeding edge stuff back in the day, man. It was fun. You remember... Uh, it brought back a lot of memories watching your segment. Do you remember quarter deck uh, QEMM386 where you could load some of your TSRs in high memory and your yeah. device yep. drivers? And then uh, they had uh, desk view uh, 386, which you could play actually multitask, well, sort of multitask DOS apps with it and stuff like that. Yeah, and that I was fun. I found a shareware program that would do that the multitasking that I used and it actually worked and didn't crash too much did some but yeah. everything did back I then hey, I can't um, remember the name of it but I do remember hey Tommy you mentioned quarter decks QEMM 
We we use that when I one of my first jobs I worked for uh, Exxon uh, Corporation downtown in New Orleans and and they had nothing but PS2s from IBM. Mm-hmm. And you could you could get like seven hundred and ten or I forget how much it was seven hundred k of uh, conventional RAM using QEMM. I remember those days, man. Nobody would ever need more than sixteen forty k. That's right. That's right. Yep. But it, it really shocked me that the floppy drive actually worked with it. I didn't know that there was any floppy support on the Pi at all, and I I plugged it up and and looked at it in Raspbian, and lo and behold, I could read a disk. When I actually shot that, and I was in DOSBox trying to mount it, I didn't know if that was going to work. I was thinking this probably won't work, but it did. So it was... So the original uh, fat, the fat file system, huh? Yep. Yep. Hey, you're you're probably the only person I know that's actually got a floppy disk. So don't lose that thing. Well, I'm not. Yeah. Well, that was a lot of fun. We're going to be right back because we're going to talk about the contest that's coming up and how you could win a really nice package. So don't go away. At the end of each month, it's Amateur Logic's Ham College, the new show for those new to the hobby and those wanting to get into amateur radio. Which of the following is a purpose of the amateur radio service as stated in the FCC rules and regulations? That inductor and capacitor form a tuned circuit. That's how you tune the radio to the frequency that you want. The English language. We lived in town. I liked it. I, I listened to mine a lot. It was really cool because you didn't have to have a battery to power yeah. There's our homemade telegraph station. We can use it for long-distance communications. Oh, like, uh, what, three feet yeah, here? across the table. The answer is B. Voltage was named after Italian physicist Alessandro Volta. We can see we're generating a little bit of electricity there. It's DC. It's always great to go back and get a refresher. It well, sure is. A lot of that stuff, if you've been a ham for a while like we have, you, you don't really think about a lot of that stuff that often. They didn't have electric screwdrivers in those days, so that's why we're not using one. That's why we went primitive with it. Yeah. So let's see if we can hear anything when we, uh, we fire off our spark gap transmitter. Well, we didn't build anything or blow up anything today, but... Um, the night's still young. I believe you had an email there, Tommy, that you wanted to share with us before we go on. I do have an email. I don't have any pictures to go with it, but it's I've got an email from Jeff, K-A-8-Z-U-V. He says, uh, Tommy and George, a.k.a. Dean Martin and Professor Thomas, I just want to say thank you for helping me pass my technician license exam today. I've been a novice since 1986 and have been inactive for many, many years, but decided to get back into the hobby recently. I bought a study guide, took notes, but more importantly, watched all 29 episodes of Ham College. One or two a day, every other day. Bless you, Jeff. When I was taking the test on several of the more difficult questions, I could hear in my mind of you two reviewing and analyzing the various multiple choice questions and explaining the answer, which answer was correct. I'm sure with, that without the help of Ham College and its faculty, the test would have been much more difficult. Thank you again. After a short break, I'll start watching Ham College for the next step to general. By the way, I only missed one question on the test. That's awesome. That's another uh, Ham College graduate right there. So congratulations, Jeff. 
We're giving away an ICOM IC705, of course, courtesy of ICOM America. And, you know, this is, well, they should be shipping to dealers at the end of September. And we'll have one in October uh, when it comes time to give away or or else we'll have the cardboard stand-in. But somebody's going to win one of the first IC705s to land in the U.S. You're really going to like that radio. It is off the charts as far as a small QRP rig goes in its capabilities. It is a new hybrid radio. It's got base station radio performance and functions. They're packaged in a compact and lightweight portable size. It's perfect for soda, poda, and some other on-air locations. It does 10 watts with an external 13.8 volt DC supply or 5 watts with a BP-272 lithium-ion battery pack. And that's the same battery pack that's used on a lot of ICOM handy talkies. HF, 6 meters, 2 meters, 440, D-starred, single sideband, CWAM, and FM mode. You could practically say that's all band, all mode there. RF direct sampling system that greatly reduces distortion. It's high speed, high resolution, real time spectrum scope and waterfall display. D-Star functions are built right in. Uh, and you'll enjoy the latest G3 gateway and DV mode features and have direct access to the D-Star network with terminal and access point modes. And it incorporates the photo share feature as seen on the IC9700. Uh, GPS functions are built right in. It enhances field operation because it includes your location for logging, for using with DPRS, Near Me Repeater Search and Scan, QSO Recording with Metadata, and Internal Clock Synchronization. And there's optional backpack available as well that you'll be getting with this, and it's really the perfect accessory for the rig. The radio just fits in the very top there, and it is strapped in where it cannot fall out, and you've got plenty of room for antennas, spare batteries, coax, and we're going to need an antenna to go with that as well. And I don't know, Tommy, what do you think would make a good antenna for that setup? Well, how how about one of the MFJ2289 Big Ear HF antennas, like the one that you've seen me use uh, on a couple of my segments and on a few of our field day trips? Yeah, Big Ear is an easily portable, easy-to-set-up antenna. It's easy to tune. Pairs great with the ICOM 705. The 2289 Big Ear is also a great general coverage antenna. It can be tuned down to exceptionally low SWR on any frequency between 7 and 55 megahertz. So that that's, covers a lot of ground for you. It's got stainless steel whips. They're strong, weather-resistant, telescopic whips. They stretch to an impressive 34-foot span, which is twice the length of a lot of the other portable antennas. This uh, also comes with a sturdy 45-degree center block with MFJ's unique high-Q matching system. You have a pair of ears that really helps bring in the weak signals that a lot of the others will struggle with. MFJ put their elaborated guanella ballon inside the center block feed assembly. This is also going to help you 
protect you from RF coming down the feed line as well. It's easy to assemble, only a few parts to carry around, and the tune-up is really fast and easy. You can be on the air while your friends are still reading the instruction manuals. Portable antenna can be put together without using any extra tools as well, so you can use your hands and uh, hand tighten it kind of help keep the weight in your backpack down. It's made with heavy-duty components, so it's going to last you for years. And it's going to come with the RG8X coax from MFJ as well. And it's also going to come with the optional carry bag and the tripod and mast. I can run off batteries with 5 watts, but what if I was going to be carrying a 12-volt battery or... Say if I was going to a location where I had AC power, what would you use for that? How about an MFJ 4115 power supply? It's super compact, great for traveling. It weighs only one and a half pounds and it'll fit nicely into your backpack. 13.8 volts DC output at 15 amps continuous. That's going to give you enough power for most VHF, UHF, or QRP radios. And you may want a headset to go with that setup right there and... I think this would be the perfect one right here. It's the Heil BM-17 headset. It's a medium-weight headset designed for emergency communications that's also perfect for portable and on-the-go operations. They uh, come available in single-side or dual-side models. The BM-17 dynamic element is available, or this one's going to include the BM-17IC electric element. That works great with uh, many older ICOM rigs that needed a little extra mic gain. The speakers using the BM-17 are very sensitive and don't require much AF drive from the transceiver. And Heil has the uh, Heil AD-1 adapters available that fit most popular rigs. So you don't have to worry about wiring up connectors and things. Just order the correct adapter to go with your rig and it just plugs right in and you're ready to go. Also, one other prize, this comes from our friends at W5YI and Master Publishing, Forest Mims Engineering Mini Notebooks. You know, you used to see these at Radio Shack. Uh, They're still available at W5YI.org and a lot of other locations. A great set here of four different mini notebooks that have... A lot of detailed projects in them, all hand-illustrated by Forrest Mims. Very easy to use. He's got just, yeah, the, just the details you need, not a lot of extraneous stuff that's going to put you off from building. He gets right to the topic, gives you the information you need to put these projects together, I have used these many times to build things. I would just take various projects that uh, Forrest had written about there, combine them all together to make what it was I was trying to build. And I've built a number of things that way and always been a great resource. Also, you're going to get the latest version of Getting Started in Electronics, also by Forrest Mims. You know, Forrest really does a great job, very understandable. I'm sure, well, all of us here have have seen his books before and maybe even built some projects out of them. So highly recommend it, and thanks, W5Y and Master Publishing, 
for making those available. You know, W5YI and Master Publishing are also the people who publish the Gordon West Amateur Radio Study Guides, which we also highly recommend. Well, Tommy, if someone wanted to win this, what is it they would need to do? The qualifications are you must be a licensed U.S. or Canadian amateur radio operator with a U.S. or Canadian shipping address. Only one entry per contestant. If you send more than one entry, you're going to be disqualified, so don't do that. If you're in doubt as to whether or not you have entered, send an email to one of us. Uh, Well, send it to uh, Tommy at AmateurLogic.tv or George, and, and we'll check and see. You know, we don't want anybody to be disqualified needlessly. You'll get an autoresponder reply whenever you do register, uh, but sometimes those get bounced by the mail servers. So if you think you did but you're just not sure, ask one of us. We'll be glad to tell you. The winner's going to be responsible for any taxes incurred. And the winner agrees to let us use his or her call sign and name and promotional and news items related to the contest. Contestants must not be an employee or affiliate of Amateur Logic, ICOM, MFJ Enterprises, Heil Sound. And how you enter, well, you send an email to us, contest2020 at amateurlogic.tv, and use only your call sign in the subject line. Include your name, call sign, class of license, and address in the email message. Submissions must be made between Friday, August the 14th, and Monday, October the 12th of 2020. That means you got about a month from the day we're shooting this. Um, winner selection, well, the contest winner will be selected by a random number drawing from the entries received. And the winner is going to be announced in the October 16th episode of Amateur Logic TV right here live. So get your entry in today. If it's determined that the winning entry doesn't meet the qualification requirements, another winner will be chosen by the same method. The contest rules and information will be posted at www.amateurlogic.tv forward slash contest. U.S. and Canadian amateurs, you need to get your entry in there. Somebody's going to win this. And, well, it's really a nice package. I don't know why you wouldn't want to enter. I would if I could. Just and I know the cheap guy over here would, you know. Yeah, I, I see I've been him. checking the uh, list to see if his call sign was in there. Yep. Okay, so we want to thank ICOM, MFJ, Heil Sound, and W5YI for sponsoring the contest here. Good luck in the contest, everyone. And remember, go get all the details at amateurlogic.tv slash contest. Yeah, usual, the usual uh, exchange is 73. Uh, good luck in the contest. <laughs> is that what email was trying to say there? I was trying to get the books. Give me your... Oh, missed it. Uh, okay. I got to replace mine. I, I have, like you, George, I, I have pretty much every one that Radio Shack sold. But unfortunately, the the quality of the paper that they printed them on uh, definitely wasn't acid free, and and the uh, the pages have have really turned a yellow color, and I'm not sure how long the the binding is going to last on them. So I need to replace mine. 
Before we go, let's go around one more final time and see if everyone has any last words for this month's episode. Tommy? Uh, not too much to add. It was uh, fun. I feel kind of weird because I was the slacker of the month and didn't have a segment, but uh, I have one for next time. But uh, anyway, I'm going to be listening for the space station repeater coming up here pretty quick. Four minutes and 12 seconds, actually, so hopefully we'll hear it. Oh, okay. I understand if you're outside with a handy talkie, you can you can uh, sometimes pick it up. Not yeah. for very long, mind you, but... Uh, uh, Emil, how fast is that ISS traveling? Well, somewhere above 17,000 miles an hour, right? Yeah, about 17,000. Yeah, I was going to say 16,000 and change, but yeah, that's probably right. Wow. Well, Emil, any final words from down there? No final words other than uh, to keep it cheap. And uh, I like the I like this the switch up here a little bit of uh, different directions. So we'll keep it mixed up. Okay. And Mike. Um, not too much. I've, I uh, I haven't had a lot of time to do too much, but you know, with the weather getting colder, it's it's almost getting to the point where y- you can start doing some outside antenna work now that it's getting cold. <laughs> yeah. Yep. We've talked about that before. Well, and for me, I don't know. I'm just going to say, uh, you know, get out there and do your antenna work when you can find a break. Down here, it's pretty hot. So I, I think in the south we can safely wait another month or two before we go out to do antenna work. Anyway, be sure to join us next month, and that is going to be on October the 16th to see when we give away this. And I don't know what we're going to do for the special 15th anniversary episode yet, but we're going to do something fun. I'm pretty sure about that. So um, thanks for being here. And join us for Ham College at the end of this month and Amateur Logic. On October 16th, Interoperable Radio System, or IORS, um, which was installed in the International Space Station. That's not it. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I didn't know. I knew MFJ was into a lot of stuff, 